This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Happy Easter. Charles Osgood is off today. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. Easter is, first and foremost, a day of great religious significance. Yet, somehow over the centuries, the day also became identified with a certain cute, furry animal. Faced with the puzzle over how that happened, we ask Martha Teichner to investigate for our Easter Sunday Morning cover story. Here comes Peter Cottontail, hopping down the bunny trail. Here's a question. How old is the Easter Bunny? Older than you might think. And given the occasion, we thought we'd introduce you to some people with a real rabbit habit. I had this Sunday morning hopping down the bunny trail. <laughs> The Big G is the trademark of one of the world's largest food companies, a food company marking a very big birthday, as Anthony Mason will show us. Your archives here go back to the beginning of the company. It goes back to the beginning of the company, 1866. In these stacks, you'll find the first drawing of Betty Crocker, the original Pillsbury Doughboy, and a vintage box of a familiar cereal. The original name of the product is Cheerios. Inside the archives of General Mills on its 150th anniversary, later on Sunday morning. There's no better time than Easter to visit with Joel Osteen, a preacher with a huge congregation and a giant television audience to match. Tracy Smith has our Sunday profile. Pastor Joel Osteen has the most watched religious broadcast in America. The seeds of discouragement cannot take root in a grateful heart. And he so prays it'll stay that way. Tell me what that affirmation is. That affirmation is. is, is, Lord, help me when they turn me on that they won't turn me off. Look at her looking at you. She is so... Joel Osteen counts his blessings ahead this Easter Sunday morning. A tag team isn't that unusual in the world of staged wrestling, but the one-hour Rita Braver watched in action certainly is. I just can't wait for you all to get here and just really turn this 
thing into something like they've never seen. These two women are the powers behind next week's WrestleMania. But one of them is a bit more hands-on. Are you going to make her get into the ring too? So, I haven't talked to her. No. <laughs> Later on Sunday morning, planning wrestling's Super Bowl. So come in and lots of Anna Werner shows us some genuine eye candy. Steve Hartman has the story of a very young hero. David Edelstein reviews the movie Batman versus Superman and more. Ahead, the art of the jelly bean. But first, here comes Peter Cottontail. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Say hello to Snickers, our semi-official Sunday morning Easter bunny. When it comes to giving out Easter treats, we expect bunnies like Snickers to hop to it. Why that is exactly is the question Martha Teichner explores in our cover story. Here comes Peter Cottontail, hopping down the bunny trail. Have you ever really thought about the Easter Bunny? Other than considering at a very young age whether to submit to a bunny hug or whether to subject your child to the ordeal, however cute, of sitting on his lap for a photo op. Wait, is he a she? In fact, long before it was a bunny, it was a hare. Online, you'll see all sorts of stories about how the Easter hare goes way back to a pagan goddess whose name sounds like Easter. Doubtful. There's no evidence that it's true. It could be true, but a lot of things about that era could be true that we can't uh, verify. The Easter hare does appear to be German. The first known written reference to such an animal, 1682. It's a German book, but written in Latin. And it's about the custom of Easter eggs, but it also uh, mentions the Easter hare as uh, a creature that delivers the eggs. Stephen Winnick is a folklorist with the Library of Congress. At what point does the Easter hare make his way, or her way, to America? We know that it was here by around the 1780s or 1790s. Brought by the Pennsylvania Dutch, who were actually German. It's really Pennsylvania Deutsch. One of the problems that the early Pennsylvania German artists had was how do you depict a hare carrying a basket of eggs? And so you have this kind of weird contraption. The basket seems to be attached to them in some way, but it's not really clear how that's working. So when did the Easter hare become a rabbit? Well, this is actually a magazine which was called the Pennsylvania Dutchman. And so we're looking right now at an issue from 1950. In it, the reminiscences of Joseph H. Dubbs, born in 1838. And what he says is, Easter was the time for colored eggs, and children were told that a rabbit laid them. The, the rabbit ra laid them. The rabbit laid them. An egg-laying rabbit. Strange. But never mind, there's a whole lot more to rabbits than the Easter Bunny. Did you know that the American Rabbit Breeders Association recognizes 49 different breeds? A lot of nice animals on the table. And that people show them, just like dogs. Please have your rabbits ready for showing on the table. At this event in Washington, Pennsylvania, outside Pittsburgh, around 1,000 rabbits were entered. At a national show, it's more like 20 to 30,000. We can bring our junior does up here. Some rabbit basics. She's got a good head. A female is a doe. Got a very nice head to a beautiful substance to those ears. A male is a buck. Rabbits are capable of breeding once a month. Babies are called kits. At a show, what looks like obsessive petting is grooming. No hair products allowed, just water. These are both what variety? Nell and Dwarf. 
This is the smallest of the breeds. Mike Chapsky has been raising rabbits since 1972. He even met his wife showing them. I've always lived on a farm. I do have three acres myself and a 350-hole rabbitry right now. Chapsky goes through a ton of feed a month and attends around 40 shows a year. Now, are these, any of them pets? Uh, all my animals are pets. Yeah, I mean, I talk, we talk. We have a radio going on 24 hours a day for them. These guys, they, they listen oldies. 40s, 50s, No, we're talking 60s. on the boardwalk and that kind of stuff, drifters, the platters and the coasters, all that. We do have a radio in our barn. What kind of music do they like? Uh, country. This one's name is Cupcake, a New Zealand owned by Skylar McCann. She's 11 and has been showing rabbits for a year. Do you think you'll be raising rabbits all your life? I think I am, because I really enjoy it, and I think they enjoy me too. Best in show today is my mini Rex. <laughs> you'll see a lot of kids competing. Breeding rabbits is popular with 4-H clubs. It helps that they're small, except when they're not. So on Flemish Giants, we're looking for exactly what's in their name. They need to be giant. Judge Maddie Pratt. He needs to weigh a minimum of 13 pounds to be able to be shown. And this breed does not have a maximum weight. Flemish Giants can top 20 pounds. The breed with the longest ears? So this is an English lop. Lop meaning its ears hang down. Hannah Raynard judges them. Their ears have to be at least 21 inches in length from tip to tip. So if you were to take the ruler, so he's about 24 inches in length. Come on, runner, go. Now if you want to see something really wild, look at this. Come on, I know. Rabbit agility is the latest thing at rabbit shows. Keep going, baby girl. I'll bet this guy couldn't jump hurdles. The breeds with the longest coats are the Angoras, which strongly resemble fluffy slippers. I'm picking this one to groom today, and her name is Angelique. I'm going to blow it to get rid of all the loose wool that I combed out. The reigning queen of Angora breeders is Betty Chu of San Jose, California. Angelique is about seven months old, so she has a coat about seven to eight inches long. A good quality English Angora should grow one inch of wool each month. That's nothing compared to Angelique's mother, Francesca, who holds the Guinness World Record for wool more than 14 inches long. Eric Stewart, executive director of the American Rabbit Breeders Association, raises French Angoras. And this is Sunny. She's just over three years old. And sells the wool to be spun into yarn for sweaters or scarves. As you can see, this is quiet, painless. Which means giving his rabbits a haircut three times a year. How much does this actually sell for? About $10 an ounce. Wow. Obviously a high-maintenance breed. As good a pet as a rabbit can be, Stewart insists the lesson here is that it's not a living Easter bunny. I mean, everyone loves a baby. Everyone loves a little bunny. And, you know, it sounds like a wonderful gift to bring home to a family, but, you know, this is a, you know, five to 10 year commitment. And you want to make certain that the family is prepared. So, instead of a real bunny in that Easter basket, there's always the chocolate kind. U.S. candy companies produce more than 100 million of them every year. Hippity, hoppity, happy Easter day. Next. The whims and wishes, the desires of the wealthy know no bounds. We've called you a car. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. March 27, 1863. 153 years ago today the day a motor car legend started its role. For that was the day Henry Royce was born near Peterborough, England. A gifted engineer, Royce tried his hand at building his own automobile in 1903. His car impressed a dealer named Charles Rolls,
who agreed to sell as many of the cars as Royce could build. And so was born the Rolls-Royce, which went on to become the standard for automotive luxury. Feeling flush? Then let's look at the kings of the highway. And though Rolls and Royce are both long gone, their car and its mystique live on. Haven't looked at the very latest engine here, so you Its reputation wanted a starring role in the 1964 movie, The Yellow Rolls Royce. With Rex Harrison as a fussy British lord who tries out the posh back seat and claims to find imperfections. I, I, I don't much care for the shape of the decanter, and the uh, telephone's badly placed. Beatle John Lennon did the yellow Rolls-Royce one better when he gave his car a custom paint job. And customizing remains the name of the game. And here, if you want it, they'll give it to you. As Mark Phillips learned when he visited the Rolls factory two years ago. The whims and wishes, the desires of the wealthy know no bounds. Not content with the usual handcrafted leather and burnished wood interiors, Rolls buyers today are ordering and getting just about any feature imaginable. Green is my lucky color. You'll bring me more friends and prosperity. Chen An Gare of Shanghai is just one of the tycoons who've made China the leading market for Rolls Royces. I knew that question was coming. <laughs> Speaking of green, he says he paid $1.8 million for his. But don't let the price tag discourage you. A so-called entry-level Rolls-Royce ghost can be yours for just a tad more than a quarter of a million dollars. Ahead, eye candy. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Jelly beans are more than just a popular Easter candy. In the right hands, they can be transformed into eye candy. Anna Warner has been watching an expert in action. From a distance, it's hard to tell what these works by artist Kristen Cummings are made of. They look like mosaics, shiny, like glass. I like making things out of weird stuff. Weird maybe is a little harsh. Surprising maybe. Yeah, unusual. <laughs> Tasty materials. That's true. Chocolate devotion. This dark blue is blueberry. That's because her materials are actually jelly beans. Coconut. Which she uses to make some of the most beautiful works, like Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, even sweeter. Cummings is surrounded by jelly beans in her studio in the garage of her Pittsburgh, California home. They're supplied by Jelly Belly, which actually considers her its artist in residence. I never would have imagined I'd be any sort of artist, much less a jelly bean artist. It takes her about seven days to turn 12,000 jelly beans into a work of art. Really, the only question I have for you is how many of these do you eat? <laughs> well, I've limited myself. In the last couple years or so, I limit myself to trying all the new flavors because they're so good that if I didn't have some sort of rule, I would just be in trouble. I'd be in big trouble. Cummings is one of a handful of artists turning beans into beauty. Jelly Bean Mosaics started in the 1980s. Hey. And were actually inspired by President Ronald Reagan's love for the candy. That's what makes me vote. <laughs> His obsession motivated San Francisco artist Peter Rocha to create this image, which now hangs in the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. Cummings developed a taste for jelly beans in 2009. She's since created nearly 40 pieces. This is, this is kind of like your mothership, right? Yeah. Most of her work, appropriately, is displayed here at Jelly Belly headquarters in Fairfield, California. When you walk in here, like, nobody knows who you are. No, absolutely not. No. You're just the I'm lady with, with the red hair. <laughs> yeah. I'm okay with that. Collectors have developed a sweet tooth. Some of her works have sold for thousands of dollars. And she gives new meaning to the term performance art. 
Here at Chicago's Comic and Entertainment Expo last week, she gave onlookers a sense of her process. She starts by creating an image with acrylic paint. Then, using spray adhesive, she sticks on the beans one by one. Using more than one different kind of blue or different kind of red will allow me to create a sense of depth and three-dimensionality, even though it's a two-dimensional surface. And it's just more interesting to look at, I think. Along the way, she's copied the works of the old masters, Van Gogh's The Starry Night, Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring, with one major difference. There's this huge history going back with oil painting and, you know, marble sculpture, and, and there's these really, what I consider, serious mediums. And this just isn't it because it's, you know, you can't really mess up. You can't? No. Well, you can always fix it. And, you know, if it's jelly beans, you can eat your mistakes. So okay. <laughs> it doesn't really get better than that. Still to come. Every, every week, I said, I'd love to meet you after service. If they want to wait, I mean it. Preacher Joel Osteen. But first, and I get goosebumps just standing here thinking about what it's going to be. A tag team that packs a punch. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley. For the unenlightened, that's John Cena prevailing over the edge and the big show at the WrestleMania event back in 2009. This year's bout of over-the-top staged wrestling is just one week off, and as Rita Braver explains, there's a most unusual tag team in command. Over more than three decades, WrestleMania has become the Super Bowl of American wrestling, a day-long event featuring brawny brawlers of both sexes. And next Sunday, for the first time, the success of wrestling's biggest event will rest largely on the very strong shoulders of these two women. We get to have our fans literally on the floor with us. They are scions of two of America's most prominent sports families. It's an emotional journey for me every single year. And being Stephanie now, McMahon, daughter of World Wrestling Entertainment CEO Vince McMahon, is the company's chief brand officer. Charlotte Jones Anderson, daughter of Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, holds the same job for the Cowboys. It was Charlotte who managed to land WrestleMania for her family's AT&T stadium. I made the pitch of why we needed to be together and why WrestleMania had to occur here. And at, when it was over, Vince looked down the table and he said, we're going to come to AT&T Stadium. So I mean, it was a great, good. great How event. How say no to Charlotte? <laughs> <laughs> but it was kind of up to you to a certain extent to make it all work. Oh, exactly. <laughs> of course, it's a bit different from the games usually played here. Charlotte's Dallas Cowboys are in a sport where nothing is preordained. But Stephanie makes no bones about the fact that world wrestling matches are essentially fixed, or as WWE prefers to say, scripted. This season's stories of villains versus heroes will culminate in WrestleMania 32, really a mega finale where champions will be revealed. You know what that outcome is. Absolutely. And if we're doing our jobs right, we're going to take you on a ride to make you so anxious and so caught up that you can't wait to see what's going to happen. But if their sports are different, their lives have many similarities. Stephanie, when you first really came into your own in the business, there was a little skepticism, like, who is oh, there this still girl? Is. Absolutely, there still is. I do think that when you are the boss's daughter or the boss's son that you have more to prove. He challenges me more. He drives me harder. You don't expect respect. You have to earn it from everyone. My bigger challenge is overcoming a perception that is you are there only because you are 
your father's daughter. So every step of the way, you're always trying to not only prove to prove, yourself, yep. but you're trying to prove in your work that you belong where you are. And both women are working in fields dominated by male executives. Charlotte was not long out of Stanford University when her father sold his oil and gas business to buy the then struggling cowboys in 1989. My family and I have given a big piece of us to be a part of the Cowboys. There will be nobody with the Cowboys that doesn't give as big a piece of them or we don't want them with the Cowboys. People forget that at that time the Dallas Cowboys were losing $75,000 a day. A day. One of her jobs was to save money. And then you picked the biggest red letter item on the list, which happened to be laundry, and, and <laughs> went to the local dry cleaning and said, I'll tell you what, if you will take care of our laundry bill, I'll put your sign out at practice. And slowly, the idea of sponsorship and marketing evolved. In recent years, she oversaw the building of this billion-dollar stadium, the nation's largest dome structure. This is our suite. On game day, this is filled with quite a bit of activity to align with the floor. She's now supervising a new state-of-the-art practice field and team headquarters on 91 acres, about an hour out of Dallas, in Frisco, Texas. Signing in blood. Inside of 10 minutes, we're making decisions. Stephanie McMahon started working at World Wrestling, headquartered in Stamford, Connecticut, when she was still in high school. So I'd come after school and I'd answer phones, and I still have extensions memorized from that time. <laughs> we are here on the first floor, which is in essence the heart and soul of the digital and social and creative teams for WWE. So this is where it all really happens. After Boston University, she worked her way up through the executive ranks, but she also plays another role. That's right, she's not only a top executive, but also a wrestler, a villain nicknamed the Billion Dollar Princess. She once even had to slap her mother, Linda McMahon, a former WWE executive in her own right and one-time candidate for the U.S. Senate. I almost threw up. I'm not kidding. That was the single hardest thing I have ever had to do in our show. Stephanie slapped her own mother! Of course, it was all part of the show. Oh Outside the ring, Stephanie's life is remarkably parallel to Charlotte's. Both are moms to three children. Both are married to men who work for the family business. Charlotte to marketing executive Shy Anderson, whom she met on a blind date, and Stephanie to WWE World Heavyweight Champ Triple H and both joke about conflict with their dads. No, I've never threatened to really fire her. Uh, I know that sometimes I've uh, expressed my disappointment, which is probably worse than me threatening to fire her. You might her. not remember that he threatened to fire me, but uh, you have, well, actually. Okay, I have. <laughs> I would suggest I've probably threatened to fire everyone who's ever worked here. Yeah. It's sort of a, a motivational yes. technique. Yeah. I think she's been let go three or four times. I've heard that. Maybe you don't always see eye to eye. Well, uh, uh, no, we do not see eye to eye. Uh, more often than not, though, I come around. But each is clearly the apple of her father's eye. Jerry Jones says he admires his daughter's ability to command respect. Uh, so I knew and from her experience that uh, uh, she wouldn't break. <laughs> that uh, she had a tough skin. I saw that in her, that she uh, would confront. It's a jolt of adrenaline for me because I draw that youth and that, uh, you know, that vibrance that she has. Neither woman wanted to discuss speculation that she could be in line to run the family company in the future. They were both too focused on WrestleMania 32. You expect every seat to be filled? I mean, is that the idea? Yes. That's, that's yeah. the goal. They hope to break the WrestleMania attendance record of 93,000 173, set in 1987. But it's more than numbers that drives them. We want people to walk away and say, I have never been in a place like that and had an experience like that in all of my life. And, and likely never will again. And likely never will again. <laughs>
recordings that will survive. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It happened this past week. The latest additions to the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress. Each year, the library chooses 25 recordings, that are culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and at least 10 years old. We don't have time to tell you about all 25, but here are a few highlights. Let me call you sweetheart. Let me call you sweetheart. By the Columbia Quartet is this year's oldest entry, recorded back in 1911. The Hoagie Carmichael tune, Stardust, is one of a number of performances from a 1940 radio concert that were inducted as a group. I need not tell you. Amid the music, there's a historic speech. But the world situation is very serious. Secretary of State George Marshall's 1947 announcement of an economic aid package for Europe. You know, the Marshall Plan. The jazz-based soundtrack for the 1951 film, A Streetcar Named Desire, composed by Alex North, is the only movie score to make the cut. The Kurt Weill, Bertolt Brecht classic, Mac the Knife, is honored twice. Is that someone, Mac the Knife? Yeah. First by the Louis Armstrong version from 1956, just a jackknife. And by Bobby Darren's upbeat 1959 cover. And it keeps it uh, out of sight. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried. Mama Country tried. music earns a spot with Merle Haggard's 1968 ballad, Mama Tried. He's only me to blame, cause Mama tried. Sing us a song, you're the piano man. Billy Joel makes the list for his 1973 hit, Piano Man, inspired by his own experiences as a piano man. And appropriately enough for the cause of preservation, there's even the disco-era anthem, I Will Survive, sung by Gloria Gaynor. Cheerios. Yes, Cheerios. We serve up breakfast next. Starting this morning, we launch a now and again Sunday morning series we call Minding Our Business, a look at some of America's great companies. And we begin with the big G you see on the cereal box. It stands for a company with many another product and a very rich history. Anthony Mason takes us inside. Your archives here go back to the beginning of the company. It goes back to the beginning of the company, 1866. Wandering the stacks in the archives of General Mills, you'll encounter the Jolly Green Giant and Betty Crocker. This one actually becomes a very strong Betty for us. And get just a little taste of American history. So here's the first ever athlete on the Wheaties box. Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig, 1934. This is the company that gave us Wheaties. Get on your way with Wheaties, breakfast of champions. And that other, even better known, breakfast cereal. But I have to tell you that in 1941, when we created this product, it wasn't actually Cheerios. The original name of the product is Cheerios. In-house historian Tom Forsyth says a competitor sued claiming trademark infringement. Cheerios. The rest is history. And you know, oftentimes you think of lawsuits as a negative thing. This one worked out for us. The Big G is celebrating its 150th anniversary. Now the world's sixth largest food company with $17 billion in annual sales, General Mills markets hundreds of brands, from Yoplait yogurt to Old El Paso, Nature Valley granola to Annie's Organic. 
Today, we're the third largest organic food supplier in the country. Ken Powell, chairman and CEO of General Mills, says it's all researched in their Betty Crocker test kitchens in Minneapolis. There are 19 of them, and all of our recipe preparation and development, that all happens here. This company's been around for a century and a half. Yeah. How do you make sure you're around for another 150 years? By adapting. That, Powell says, is how the company's survived this long. It was a milling company on the banks of the Mississippi. We invented the packaged food revolution in America. The consumer wanted convenience, and General Mills became Betty Crocker and Bisquick and Cheerios and cereal. General Mills began as the Washburn Crosby Company in 1866, selling a single product, its gold medal winning flour. Still the number one selling flour in America. Is it really? Yeah, 150 years later. That's pretty impressive. That is pretty impressive. <laughs> 1903, gold medal Forsyth and archivist Jessica Fauché pulled out an early cookbook. And this is things you can make with gold medal flour. They all expect that you know how to do certain things if you're going to make calf's brain breaded. <laughs> how to separate the two loaves of the brain with a knife and then soak them in cold water with a little salt for an hour. And they expected you to use everything. Oxize. Oxize. So now let's talk about Wheaties. Okay, we're in the cereal section. In 1921, the company began marketing its second product, Washburn's Whole Wheat Flakes, which would become Wheaties. But they didn't catch on at first. So on Christmas Eve, 1926, mm -hmm. we hired the Wheaties Quartet to come in and sing the Wheaties Jingle, which is the first ever singing radio commercial. Wow. And it goes something like this. Have you tried Wheaties? Uh, There's whole wheat in the brand. Won't you try Wheaties? For wheat is the best food of man. It was catchy. It was catchy. And Wheaties sales improved. The company learned the power of radio and television. General Mills would sponsor The Lone Ranger in the 1940s and the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons in the 1950s and 60s. Today our program is brought to you by General Mills. So this is the General Mills Fun Group toy section. The Fun Group. General Mills was actually the largest manufacturer of toys in the 1970s. They sold Play-Doh, created the Care Bears, and invented the Nerf ball. Hey, let's play ball. In the house? Sure. We sold four million Nerf balls the first year. <laughs> and yes, those are the monkeys. You bought your Nerf. So these are going to be a little bit different. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because the Doughboys are actually in little coolers. In 2001, when General Mills bought crosstown rival Pillsbury, a little clay plaster figure joined the family. Hi, I'm Poppin' Fresh, the Pillsbury Doughboy. This is the very original Pillsbury Doughboy. This is the very dough original Doughboy, 1965. And so when he first came about, they had five bodies and 15 different heads so that they could switch them out and move them ever so slightly. Right. And it actually took 24 still shots to get one second of film. Dobbins is loving like something from the oven. And Pillsbury says it best. But no character spans the company's history quite like this lady. Betty Crocker dates to 1921. The fictional homemaker whose name would decorate millions of cake mix boxes and cookbooks. Why did General Mills decide they needed a face of Betty Crocker? People believed Betty was real, yeah. and so they wanted to see Betty. In the archives, they have the original drawing. This becomes the uh, basis for Betty's portrait, mm -hmm. first painted in 1936. Betty Crocker would become the second most recognized person in America behind Eleanor Roosevelt. She received 4,000 letters a day. These are some of them? These are some of them. In 1944, a Florida wife would write Betty about her husband. Ever since I experimentally brought home a box of Betty Crocker flour, and he experimentally baked a devil's food cake, I can't keep him out of the kitchen. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> By 1954, General Mills decided Betty needed a makeover and commissioned a handful of top artists to offer ideas. And this piece, yeah. um, 
was Norman Rockwell's submission. Is that right? It finished a very close second. <laughs> it's probably the only time Norman Rockwell ever lost. As America has changed, Betty has been reimagined six more times since, most recently in 1996. Is it time for a new Betty? Well, there's thought of this, but it's not a small undertaking, and this Betty's quite popular. I have to say, I've gotten older, Betty looks the same. Yes. <laughs> the challenge now for this General Mills will be keeping Betty and the company ageless for the next 150 years. Ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, please congratulate Miles Eckert as he presented with the Young Hero Award. Steve Hartman. This is his wedding ring. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Our nation's youngest hero was honored this past week, and among the many who believe he more than deserves it is our Steve Hartman. The Medal of Honor, presented by the President, is reserved for this country's bravest military heroes. But every year, past Medal of Honor recipients get together to recognize civilians who have gone above and beyond the call of duty. And Friday, in Arlington, Virginia, for the first time, one of those Citizen Honor Awards went to a kid, an 11-year-old boy named Miles Eckert. Ladies and gentlemen, please congratulate Miles Eckert as he presented with the Young Hero Award. As we first reported a couple years ago, it all started at this Cracker Barrel in Toledo, Ohio. Miles, in the green hoodie, was very excited. He just found $20 in the parking lot. Did you start thinking of what you could spend it on? I kind of wanted to get a video game, but then I decided not to. He changed his mind when he saw this guy in uniform. Because he was a soldier, and soldiers remind me of my dad. So he wrapped the 20 in a note that read, Dear Soldier, my dad was a soldier. He's in heaven now. I found this $20 in the parking lot when we got here. We like to pay it forward in my family. It's your lucky day. Thank you for your service. Signed, Miles Eckert, a Gold Star Kid. Army Sergeant Andy Eckert was killed in Iraq just five weeks after Miles was born. All the kid has ever had are pictures and dog tags. This is his wedding ring. Other people's memories and his own imagination. I imagined him as a really nice person and somebody that would be really fun. <laughs> the dad he imagines must also love a good story. Because after lunch oh, that day, boy. Miles asked his mom, Tiffany, to make one more stop. Excellent. He wanted to go see his dad. Hmm. And he wanted to go by himself that day. She took this picture from the car. Follow the footsteps and you'll see Miles standing there behind the flag, presumably telling his dad all about it. After that story first aired, Miles helped raise nearly $2 million for Gold Star Charities. He was chosen by our country's bravest men. And Andy might not have had um, that medal that they have, but I, I guess I just see Andy in everything we do. And Miles clearly does too. He wore the dog tags to the ceremony, a sweet touch that I'm sure Andy will appreciate on their next visit together. Still to come. It may not have been fair, but God knows how to turn it and use it to your advantage. We go to church with preacher Joel Osteen. And later... So wait. Clark Kent, Daily Planet. What's your position on the Bat Vigilante in Gotham? Flying high with Batman versus Superman. The God who created the universe is about to pick you back up breathe new life into your dreams, and propel you towards your destiny. With inspirational messages like that one, Pastor Joel Osteen has built a loyal following, both in person and on television. You'd hardly know that he ever doubted that the ministry would be his calling. Tracy Smith has our Easter Sunday profile. Every Sunday morning, as the light comes up over Houston, a capacity crowd fills the biggest church in town, and televangelist Joel Osteen prays it all goes well. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. And it seems, to some at least, that God has been listening. 
Osteen, with wife and co-pastor Victoria, leads Houston's Lakewood Church. It's now the largest congregation in the United States. More than 40,000 members show up every week to hear Joel Osteen's message of hope, usually delivered with his trademark smile. God is not in the condemning business, he's in the restoration business. His sermons are relentlessly positive, and that's made him a target of critics who say Osteen sometimes sounds less like a preacher and more like a motivational speaker. You have to take the hand you've been dealt and make the most of it. You know, you've been criticized for church light. Yeah, that's right. For a cotton candy yeah. message. Do you feel like you're cheating people by not telling them about the hell part? The no, repentance part? No, I really don't because it's a different approach. You know, it's not hellfire and brimstone, but I say most people are beaten down enough by life. They already feel guilty enough. They're not doing what they should do, raising their kids. or the, You know, we can all find reasons. So I want them to come to Lakewood or our, our meetings and be lifted up to say, you know what, I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better, and I think that motivates you to do better. Lord, I just think you today will be a new beginning in our lives. We're letting go of the old. And if anything, his flock seems to be growing. Osteen personally leads three services a week for the thousands at the church and for millions more on TV, internet, and radio, making him one of the most watched religious leaders in America. Where are we headed now? We're going to go to the uh, upstairs. There's going to be some visitors up there. After every service, the Osteens make their way to the church lobby to meet what's typically a few hundred who wait patiently in line for a personal encounter, a blessing. I just pray, Father, they won't have any complications during the delivery and just that these children will be healthy and strong. Or just a word of hope for someone going through a hard time. Or just today that things would begin to turn in his favor. For Whatever you think of Osteen's theology, you can't deny his ability to connect with his followers. Do you sometimes feel like, oh my goodness, he read my diary? Today. Yeah. I know, today. He's, he's talking, and it, like, like one time I thought he was looking at me, I'm like, he's talking about me. And the church is only part of his ministry. His eight books, including his latest, are all bestsellers, and they've made Osteen so much money that he doesn't need to touch the Lakewood collection plate. So your personal wealth comes from the books? It comes from the books. It comes from the books and stuff we do with Sirius Radio now and just other things. But I do think there is a certain thought, especially in the church world, that you're supposed to be poor and broke and defeated to show that you're humble. And see, I don't, I don't buy into that. You purposely don't ask for money on right. TV. But people send it anyway? People send money. They, they, they buy the product or they, um, they support the ministry. Yeah. You know, just an unbelievable amount that keeps it all going. Do you think if you stood up there and said, please don't send money, people would still send money? I don't know. I, can't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want to try that, though. <laughs> what happens to the money that goes to the church and to the ministry? I know you don't take a salary. Right. Just big, broad terms. $30 million goes to the TV effort. Of what's left, it's paying staff. It's supporting missionaries and missions work. It's just, it's just the organization of making it go. So if we bring in, you know, $90 million this year, we will spend $90 million. And I'm sorry, you said $90 million? Is that, is mm -hmm. that a good estimate of that what is. you'll bring in? That is. It's amazing. I know. Lord, I thank you that you have each one of us. In what might be even more amazing is that Joel Osteen never dreamed he could be a preacher, and he never even wanted to try. Born a minister's son in 1963, Joel Scott Osteen grew up in Houston watching his dad, Pastor John Osteen, founder of Lakewood Church, and a preacher with a more traditional style. When God says go, they go. When God says move, they move. People who are ready to obey God at the drop of a hat, and they're willing to drop the hat. Dad, of course, wanted Joel to succeed him as pastor, but Joel never really saw himself at the podium. Instead, he studied TV production and helped get his dad on the air every week. Yep, that's him running a camera. I had no desire to do it. And even my dad, he never pressured me. He just said, Joel, you'd make a good minister, but I had no desire and I didn't think this was in me. 
In the meantime, he met his future wife, Victoria Iloff, as she was working the counter at a jewelry store her parents owned. Their very first date, a basketball game at Houston's Compact Center. Point number one I want to I want to give to you today is if you But if you Dad kept on asking Joel to give preaching like a shot, and in January 1999, at age 36, he finally agreed to do it. This is a very nervous Joel Osteen's first TV sermon. It goes on to say, "Don't act thoughtlessly, but find out and know what the will of God is." And that's six days after this was taped, Joel Osteen got a wake-up call. My mother called it. 2 o'clock in the 209 in the morning and she said Joel dad daddy's had a, had a heart attack over at our house and, and I went there and you know the fire trucks are there and you know my dad was there on the on the ground and they were shocking him and all that stuff but I knew he was gone you know he just know it after the funeral Osteen says he felt called to stand in his daddy's shoes I'm not saying I was that great at it but it just it just immediately there was just momentum and it's almost like it never stopped in fact, under Joel Osteen, the church grew so quickly that in 2003, they leased the place where they'd had their first date, the then vacant compact center, and turned it into the new Lakewood Church. It's a family business. The Osteen's two grown children are part of the Lakewood ministry. Osteen says his dad would have loved it all. He used to call me and sometimes tell me, you know, how many were in attendance or what an offering was or something. And I think, oh, man, Daddy, if you could see it now. All making excuses will do is keep you from your destiny. The Osteen message seems to resonate outside the Bible Belt as well. It's great. I see him every Sunday. He's very inspirational. Just the way that he delivers his message is just, I don't know, there's something very special about it. Life is too short to live negative. Last week, he held an event called A Night of Hope in Newark, New Jersey. You know, sometimes you just need the basics, and I think that some people have the ability to deliver the basic principles that's needed for Christianity, and Pastor Olstein definitely can deliver that. You sell tickets to this? How does it work? We do. We sell tickets. It's a $15 ticket. I grew up as a, you know, as a preacher's kid. You don't sell tickets to go to church, but uh, so we try to do it for the lowest amount we can. So people buy a ticket, they get their seat, and we move on. It's worth noting that the Newark event was completely sold out. Victoria, let's pray. Back in Houston, not far from the church. Hey, Victoria, come on, we're going to pray and we're going to eat. The Osteens usually try to spend their Sunday afternoons at home with their extended family. Now, you guys live together and you work together. Is that always smooth sailing? We've learned. We've been married 28 years. Yeah, 28 years. But... I think it's, um, you know, I think there's... We've learned how to communicate. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's things. You know, I've learned, let her be right. And move <laughs> no. That's a good rule. That's, that's a good that's rule. Right, yeah. <laughs> but what Joel Osteen's really learned is the same message he preaches to others. Life can be pretty great if you keep looking up. You know, my dad was very, very poor. You know, no, no milk, no food, no, no heating in the, in the winter. And you know what? He stepped up. And he, you know, had a big dream for his life, and, and look what he's done for us. And so that's my whole thing is you don't have to stay there. You've got to believe that you can rise higher. So just how super is the new movie Batman versus Superman? Our critic David Edelstein knows how to answer that. I saw the best minds of several generations standing in line for days to see Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice, as if it were a religious pilgrimage. And it does inspire awe. The images are so mythic, so darkly beautiful, that the lousiness doesn't hit you all at once. It seeps in like, it's hard to find an adequate simile, like kryptonite into Superman. It leaves you green and a little pukey. It's a weird match to start, right? The fight should end with one punch, seeing as Superman is an alien with unlimited powers, while Batman's just a guy with fancy toys. Ah, but what if Batman had kryptonite and a super suit so he could get thrown through walls with no ill effects? And Superman was endlessly regenerative, getting zapped and leaping back up. 
why the fight would last hours or feel like hours. Why do they want to fight? Well, it comes down to civil liberties, really. In a prologue, Bruce Wayne, played by Ben Affleck, whose bat mask, by the way, doesn't hide the mole on his cheek or his dimpled chin. So, so how could anyone? Never mind. Bruce witnesses the partial destruction of Metropolis from the last Superman film, Man of Steel, and blames not the villains, but Superman, played by Henry Cavill, an illegal alien. The comparisons to 9-11 are unmissable, and Bruce goes over to the dark side. He uses Dick Cheney-esque language with his butler, Alfred, played by Jeremy Irons. He has the power to wipe out the entire human race, and if we believe there's even a 1% chance that he is our enemy, we have to take it as an absolute certainty. And we have to destroy him. But he is not our enemy. Superman is hardly a sunny counterpoint, always wondering if he has a right to play God the guiltiest savior imaginable. He's easy bait for Lex Luthor, whom Jesse Eisenberg plays as a cross between his Mark Zuckerberg in The Social Network and The Joker. He's ham with a side of ham. Mm, Bruce Wayne meets Clark Kent. I love it. I love bringing people together. The movie has about six opening scenes and subplots galore and introduces Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman, who mostly loiters in the margins and preens more than acts, but wowza, dig the costume. Like the last Marvel films, Batman vs. Superman is so busy setting up sequels and spin-offs, it barely tells a story. So you're overfull, but you're starved for a real movie. Which is not to say the ones in line for hours won't worship at its altar. Superheroes are their gods. No wonder the studio opened it Easter weekend. Next. She did great. She did great. Well, it remains to be seen whether I embarrass my family or not. Is that me on Madam Secretary? Senator Smith, so much has changed since we last sat down. You'd just been reelected. And now you find yourself incarcerated. We all live in prisons, Jane. Come on. I'm playing myself with Bill Murray on the Amazon show Alpha House. Let's face it, I'm no actress. But tonight on the CBS show Madam Secretary, I share the screen with another pro, Taya Leone, on my fictional Washington talk show. The clock stands at four minutes to midnight. But now, Madam Secretary, there is talk of moving it up to three minutes to midnight at the Bulletin's meeting here in Washington this week. Do you think this is a comment on the Dalton administration's foreign policy? They're not policy experts, and they certainly aren't privy to national security briefings. I had about 100 times more fun than I thought I could possibly have because I had to actually learn lines. It was, it was great. She did great. She did great. I don't, well, it remains to be seen whether I embarrass my family or not. It's heady stuff. Fact is, I never even appeared in a high school play. When you start thinking about bringing people in who have enormous uh, sort of iconic faces or reputations, you, you want to make sure that it's going to not so completely overshadow the scene because they're not going to play with you. That sounds like a fantasy. Well, so did the Berlin Wall coming down and the Red Sox winning the World Series. I thought I did the iconic part pretty, pretty well. Yes. Um, yes, that's yes, you just did. But iconic? I mean, really, if you wanted, really? there was no danger of my iconicness overwhelming your, your, your scene. Uh, I wish I could have told you in advance that if you were worried about that, no worries. I'm saying, I'll I leave the people... icon at the door. And while you were there, of course. The show has featured appearances by genuinely iconic characters. CBS newsman Bob Schieffer and a genuine Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright. There's plenty of room in the world for mediocre men. There is no room for mediocre women. I'll speak a little bit for Secretary Albright because, because she told me that I was allowed to. And she said, I love that you're making foreign policy less foreign kind of a uh, respect is probably, I'm making that up, she never said that. <laughs> but I want to say it and I want her to say it. 
she was very close, I could tell, to saying that she had great respect for what we were doing here. All those things you said that Madeleine Albright was on the verge of saying, I would have said. You made a hit show out of foreign policy. Yeah. You know, kudos well, to you. Sounds, and, yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.